Jesus, we are excited to be in your presence this morning. Lord, as we approach uh, your presence and as we approach a time to just lean in and hear from you, God, I pray that you would help us to do so. Church, I just want to invite you to put your hands out like this, uh, palms down. Uh, a lot of times when, when we pray with our palms down, it's because we are surrendering. We are surrendering something at the feet of Jesus. And with palms down and fingers spread wide, we're saying that it is all yours. Father God, you know the things that that we need to take this posture with. Lord, sometimes this feels, this life feels a lot like Yahtzee. <laughs> Lord, that we give you everything that we have and we see how you're going to bless it. Jesus, but the truth is, is that you are God, our Father. Lord, that you love us unconditionally you love us with a kind of love that we cannot even grasp. So Lord, as we, we stand together today with our arms laid low, with our hands open, God, we want to surrender everything at your feet. As we enter into a time of leaning into you, what could keep you from hearing God's voice today? Lord, and it is with your grace. It's with the, uh, your Holy Spirit faith that we say, Lord, you can have those if not for 30 minutes for the rest of my life, you can have those and I trust you. Lord, can we rest in the simple truths today that your plan is bigger than we could ever imagine? Lord, that your grace is more offensive than we could ever think. Lord, that your love is so much better than we could ever, ever comprehend, Jesus. Lord, can we rest in, in the truth today that, that we are the apple of your eye? Lord, that you created us in your image and that means something. Jesus, how beautiful you are. Can we live a life that reflects that beauty? We trust you. Church, can you say that with me this morning? God, I trust you. God, I trust you. It's in Jesus' heavenly name we pray all these things. Amen.
Well, good morning. Uh, a lot of you guys have asked me if it was like a special occasion that I wore a dress, and I told you no, it's just because it's so hot. It's just so hot. Um, and I know that people like will listen to the, my podcast in like Oklahoma and be like, you have nothing to complain about. But there was like a 10% humidity one day. And I was dying, you know, I was like, whoa, you know, and so I was like, we're going to wear a dress today, but um, I was having a conversation actually before service with my friend Nick, and he asked me, he said, Lindsay, why didn't you go on the hike um, on Saturday? And I, I didn't really have an answer for him, but I do now, um, and it, it comes in the form of a question, and that is, have you ever been lost? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, maybe when you were traveling or when you were, I don't know, hiking, uh, have you ever been lost? I, I am notorious for getting lost sometimes, uh, well, not sometimes, you know, I, I will tell you that every time I go out to women's breakfast, Elizabeth and or Valerie give me instructions on how to get there, even though I've been there like a million times. Um, I remember that when I was driving home from school one time, my friend from high school called me and we talked on the phone for like three hours and I drove three hours in the wrong direction. Um, but the, the piece de resistance is when I went camping, or when I went hiking, rather, uh, there was one summer just a couple of years ago that I decided that I was gonna hike once a week. And I really enjoyed it, like getting out in God's beautiful nature, like it's beautiful. And then you have like Instagram posts and stuff that you get to post. And like, I, I, I'm an amateur photographer, you know, with my iPhone and I get to uh, see all these things and I get quiet time. And I really enjoyed the fact that I didn't have service when I went on my hikes. So I would just leave my phone in the car which was probably my first mistake. Um, and I remember I went to Red Rock Open Space, and I, that's like one of my favorite places in Colorado Springs, because it's like Garden of the Gods, but it's less touristy, right? You know, it's less yuppie. There's less people with fanny packs there. And so I went hiking, and I, I look at the map, you know, it says like, you are here, and it's at the trailhead, so it shows you all the ways that you could go. And I went on the easiest trail that I could find because it was at the beginning of the summer and I was like, I'm just here for survival at this point. And I started on this, this wonderful journey and somewhere along the line, I went from being on the easiest trail that they offered to the highest point in Red Rock open space. <laughs> and I had no idea how I had gotten there. Um, and I, I got there and I was like, where are the maps? Where are the signs that says you are here? And if you do not hike well, you go here, you know, like, where was that? But I got completely lost. I, I could see the mountains, so I knew relatively what direction I should be going. But I start hiking and I am at literally the highest point that you can get at, at Red Rock Open Space. And like, I'm looking down on those giant rocks. And I'm thinking, man, this is trouble. How could this get any worse? And then it did. <laughs> um, it started thundering and lightning. And I thought, this is how I die. 
this is it. <laughs> um, and I wandered, and I think that hike, it, I was supposed to take about an hour. It took me about three. Um, and I finally got back to, <laughs> to my car, and I remember calling Elizabeth, and she said, oh, you sweet, beautiful friend. <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> um, and I hate getting lost. Like, nobody sets out and is like, yeah, I'm going to go get lost today, you know? Now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to not know where I'm at. That sounds great. But I think that in our life, we do have people that we look at and we say, are you trying? Are you trying to get lost? Are you trying to, like, mess this life up? Um, today we are in week three of unconditional love, and today we're going to ask a different kind of question, and that is, what do we do with those who choose to be lost? Those who choose to not be close to Jesus. Now, I just want to ask you, and I want to ask for a simple poll by the raise of your hand, how many of you, there's people in your life that you are praying for adamantly? that they would come to know the Lord. You're not alone, right? There are people in our lives that, man, we just, we just wait, and it's like the worst, slowest suspense movie ever. And we just wait for them to understand and to draw near to Jesus, but they have chosen a different way. And more and more in society, we see this, that people are distancing themselves intentionally. Now, we can't talk about unconditional love without talking about just the nature of who God is and the reason that people sometimes distance themselves. You know, one reason that people choose to not be close with the Lord is because they see him as some sort of a slave master, as a taskmaster, as somebody who has this long list of rules and they're impossible to follow and they're not very helpful, which benefits him because he just likes to punish us. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? And they say, I don't want this God in my life. On the other side, we have folks that have distanced themselves from the Lord because we say, well, he's just kind of a buddy. <laughs> he's like my moral uh, support. And really, it doesn't matter which God you pick, we all end up in the same place. And we say he's going to forgive us no matter what decision or what situation we get ourselves in. And he's just always there. He's the, he's the guy that I call when I get stuck on a hike. <laughs> and, and this is the problem, is that these two extremes, they represent extremes that we think about God. In one camp, we think that it is all about rules. That if I can't follow the rules, I don't deserve to be a part of the club. And on the other side, this extreme says it's all about relationships and that Jesus is just a best friend. And the hard part here is that finding a balance, because the truth of the matter is, is that the Lord, he loves both. And both are incredibly important to him. His rules and his standards and his commands that he's given us, they're very important to him. And they're done with it from a good place. And then his relationship, he says, yeah, absolutely, I will forgive you. And you need to have that relationship with me. And I think that the easiest way for us to realize the balance between these two 
is to not look at God as a slave master or a buddy, but rather as a father. To look at the Lord as a father. And that's the best balanced picture of who he is. That he is a father. Between rules and relationships, he stands. And in order to understand how profound that is, uh, we have to ask the question, what is a father? You know, if Star Wars taught us anything, (laughs) it was that you can't just say that you're a father (laughs) and get that title, right? Uh, um, that, that, that it isn't that simple. And so I was reading an article recently and it said uh, the four key characteristics that it takes to qualify as somebody's father. And so uh, think about your earthly father um, and, and, and run through these checks. Now, the first one was that they are the source of your existence. And unfortunately, we live in a society where some of us have to stop there. The second one is that they protect us. This is when uh, your dad taught you not to touch the stove again. The, The next one is that they correct us. You know, they tell us when we're being a jerk, okay? And the last one is that he loves us unconditionally. And that's the four traits of a father. And you have to understand how how profound this is, that God loves us like a father. Because this peace separates us from all false religions. All of them. Um, Way long ago, when C.S. Lewis was still alive, there was a, a conference in Britain, and it was a conference on comparative religions. And they set out to argue against Christianity. And they got to a point where they said, what makes it any different than any other religion out there. And they argued for days. These were top theologians and scholars, and they argued and they picked through everything. And C.S. Lewis, he tells a story about he walked into that room that day, and he looked at them and he said, I will tell you the thing that separates us, and it is one word, grace. Grace separates us from every other religion out there. He says that it goes, through, it goes against every instinct that we have. Every other faith journey, whether it's the Buddhist eightfold plan or the Hindu idea of karma or the Muslim code of law, all of them offer us this place towards God or enlightenment. But all of them are earning approval. All of them are, I did this, so God gave me this. And yet here... God is described as a father, one that gives us unmerited and undeserved favor. Now, one of my favorite stories when I was growing up uh, is with my dad. Uh, My dad was a stay-at-home dad most of my life, uh, which some of us can attribute to, you know, like strong female leaders, I think. But um, my dad was a stay-at-home dad, and he took care of me most of my life because my mom had this big bad job at the hospital and she ran like half of the hospital itself and uh, they decided that it would be best if my dad stayed home with me and so my dad um, he loves oldies okay Uh, 
that's what he grew up listening to, and uh, he reminisced about having an eight-track player in his car, um, which was an orange Camaro, if that gives you a picture of what that is. And, um, and I love my dad, and I remember that uh, our house was about a quarter mile away from uh, the oil road. Does that make does that resonate? The paved road? Okay. Uh, there was about a quarter mile of gravel road leading up to real society, I guess is the best, best way to phrase it. And I would ride the bus because country kids got to ride the bus for free since poor us, we lived out in the country. And so most days I would ride my bike down the gravel road. I would lock it to the street sign that was there and I would hop on the bus. However, in South Dakota, it gets cold. And like, not the cold that you and I are used to cold. This is like the kind of cold that when you walk out the door, your boogers freeze instantly. That kind of cold, okay? Like people die in this kind of cold, right? And so it would get really cold. And so my dad, he would load me up in his trailblazer and he would drive me down to the oil road. And we would sit and we would wait for the bus. Now, most of the time the bus was running late because there's snow and it's freezing. And why do we live here? And so we, we would sit here and we would sit at the end of the oil road and we would listen to the oldie station. It was 98.3 FM, uh, all of the hits from the 60s and 70s. And that is where my dad gave me a love of that generation of music. And I remember we'd sit there and he'd say, name that song, and he would tell me uh, to answer who sang it and what it was called, as if a second grader knows anything about Three Dog Night, okay? Um, but he would always play it, and I always failed, uh, but that's just who he was. Uh, he, he loved me. He protected me from the cold. He corrected me and made sure I had good taste in music, you know, <laughs> um, and he loved me unconditionally. And I think sometimes in our culture, the word father gets misconstrued. But let me tell you, from somebody that has an amazing dad, like, unconditional love is something that is beyond anything else. The love of a father is one that loves you when you don't love you. It is a father that, that looks at you and knows who you are and says, that's that's my son. That's my daughter. And so when we say that God has love like a father, it's a sort of love that seeps into the depths of your bones. And it forces you to, to assess your worth. And today's hope for today is that God's love is unconditional when we run. It is unconditional when we run. And I don't know where this morning meets you, but what I want to do today is that I want to look at the story of the prodigal son. And I want to look at it and say, Lord, you know who's on my list. You know who I raised my hand for. You know the person that I am waiting for. And I want to see if we can have some hope this morning. Fair enough? All right, so um, we're going to be in Luke 15, starting in 11. To illustrate the point of the f further, um, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, 
I want my share of the estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, it's important to pause here because sometimes we can kind of gloss over what's happening in this story. Um, So what happens is that the younger son goes to the father and says, give me my inheritance, all the fortune that you have saved up to give to me. I want it now. And so what that would mean in that historical context is that the older brother was set to receive a double portion. So what the father would have to do is that he would divide his assets into three parts, and he would give two-thirds to the oldest and one-third to the youngest. And all the babies of the family said, what the heck, right? Okay, (laughs) but whatever. Um, But but the oldest would get more. And so... um, the father would have to take and say, this is one-third of all that I have. Now, the confusing thing about this is that it happens while his father is still alive. Essentially, the son walks up to his father and he says, you know that third of your income? You might need it someday. I don't care. I don't care whether you are alive or dead. Just give me what's mine. And that's really awkward when the father is still alive. And um, I was trying to relate to this story, and I was recently visited my grandma Dolores in in South Dakota, and she is the best grandma on the planet. Um, She's like this big, uh, just to give you a scale to size reference. And and she uh, has just filled my heart with love most of my life. And... um, she was, thought it was very important that as she moved into a smaller and smaller living space, that she would give away her furniture to her grandkids. Now, a little known fact is that my grandpa decided one day that he was going to have a hobby of woodworking. And so he built all sorts of furniture, and it covered my grandma's house. And so as she's downsized, she's made sure every single grandkid has something that my grandpa built. Now, I hadn't gotten anything yet, but I wasn't really worried about that because I love my grandma. I know I'm, you know, the youngest son or whatever, so I probably only get a third. And, and so I was like, that's okay. And so we go to my grandma's house, and I'm not kidding you. What happens is that we're hanging this mirror on the wall, and my sister has to move this bookshelf in order to do it. And there's a post-it note on the back, and it says, give to Lindsay when I die creepy, okay? That's really awkward feeling that she's even delegated this stuff around her house to give away. And while that might be awkward and like morbid and I don't ever want to think about losing my grandma, imagine what it would feel like to be the son. Imagine what it would be like to go to Grandma Dolores and say, that bookcase that you're using, that's mine. I don't care whether you're alive or dead, it's mine. And the son, he goes and he says, I have no legal right, and I don't care. You owe this to me. And so not only is this offensive, but in order for the father to fulfill it, he would need to liquidate his assets. He would need to go, and he would need to count how many things that he has, and how many riches he has, how many servants and animals and properties and he would need to give away a third. Tim Keller, he wrote about this. He said, the wealth of this father would have primarily been in real estate, 
And to get one-third of his net worth, he would have had to sell a great deal of his land holdings. To lose part of your land was to lose part of yourself and a major share of your standing in the community. This younger son is asking his father to tear his life apart. And the father does so for the love of his son. This son walks up to his dad and says, ruin your life. Ruin your life for me. And he does. And I think that we get an image here that it's like some rebellious teenager leaving town with a duffel bag full of cash. It's not. It would be a rebellious teenager leaving town with a caravan of slaves, of food, of resources, of animals, of property, and of money that weren't his to begin with. And it's easy to look at this part of the story and be like, man, that guy was a jerk. (laughs) But lest we forget, the truth is, is that many of us are prodigal sons and daughters. Many of us. In fact, I would say that all of us at one point has been a prodigal. You know, we don't want to live by his rules. We find them limiting So we call the distance between him and I uh, freedom, you know? Every one of us has been on a journey, but there is hope at the end of the day that the father, he always gets the last word. And so if you find yourself this morning looking and saying, God, I don't see the end picture for my friend or my family member or my coworker or my spouse, I wanna walk through three steps that every prodigal journey takes. And if nothing else, give you the peace that all of our stories converge at this point. That we were all prodigals, living wastefully, running away. And yet God loved us like a father. So the first step of every prodigal journey is rebellion. And this is where every story starts. It's saying, I'm going to walk away and rebel, and I know I'm doing it. And I might even do it with some flair, you know? (laughs) And this is what happens next. Verse 13, a few days later, his younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. I read a story once about a son and his father, and the son had long hair like hair down to his shoulders, and his father hated it. Uh, And and they would go rounds about his hair. You know, cut your hair. No, I don't want it. It's my hair. You know, rebellious teenage stuff. And, And the day came after the son took all of his driver's tests and stuff, and he said, Dad, I want a car. And his dad said, okay, I'll help you buy a car. Just cut your hair, right? And, and the son got so mad, and they start arguing. He's like, I work so hard. I'm your son. You need to help me. Mama. And the, the son said, I got it. Dad, Jesus had long hair. And the dad replied with, yeah, but he also walked everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, that, was a, that was a good one. And so we call this son the prodigal son. 
And prodigal, by the definition, is living wastefully. He's not caring how much you spend. This kid went out and he blew, like think about this, he blew through the amount of money that it took this father a lifetime to acquire in a few weeks. And he just spent and he lived wildly. And another thing to notice is that it said that he moved to a distant land. Better translated, it says he moved to a different country. This was less about distance and more about freedom. More about not being able to be within the grasp of his dad. So he moves to a different land and he makes the choice that he's not going to be near his dad anymore. And the same happens in our lives. You know, we follow the enticement of sin, you know, and the promises of freedom that it gives, or the promises of comfort and acceptance and love, but soon you find yourself in a slavery that is so difficult to get out of. To put it another way, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, but that's because it's growing on a septic tank. (laughs) And the sun, he finds himself starting to smell what's underneath. Look at this, verse 14. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field of, to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Right? Looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now, there's some historical context that's needed here. Uh, The son moves away to a different country, meaning that not only does he choose to not be with his dad, he chooses to not be a Jew anymore. And he moves to a Gentile nation. And he makes a contract with a Gentile, somebody that was not a part of God's promised people. And he makes this contract so that he can do what? Feed the pigs. And worse than that is that in Jewish culture, pigs were seen as the worst animal ever. And now he is feeding them. And then it says that the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. So he wasn't even making enough money to eat. And his master wasn't even feeding him well enough. Like, just to put this in perspective, uh, the next time that you feed your dog or your cat some of those, like, little brown crunchy things, like, I want you to look at them and think, what would it take for those to look tasty to me? Like, I can't even imagine that. My, my dog eats something that's like yams and peanut butter and ground lamb. No, I don't want that. But he looks at the things that they're feeding the pigs and he says, man, that looks tasty. That looks good. And the message is pretty clear here that the farmer is feeding the pigs better than he is feeding his slave. How much value does this man have to the slave owner versus a pig? 
This is the lowest of the lowest. And he sets out, finally, to do something that we all have to and need to do, which is the second step that every prodigal journey makes, is repentance. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying from hunger. Before, he was only following what he wanted. Only what his heart desired. And now he reminisces of his father's house, of the food that he received, of the care that his father gave him. Gave him. And this is the hard truth here, is that it says, he came to his senses. There's a certain insanity about following the patterns of sin. There's a certain insanity about following a pattern of sin that promises freedom and comfort and acceptance and love and having received it for a moment and then constantly searching out the next thing that will happen. It's like any addiction. The very first time is the best. And then after that, the addict just looks to finally get back to that one time where they felt alive. And it promises something bigger and better. And actually, what it does is that it distorts hope. It gives us hope that it's going to work out. And this is how Satan operates. He gives us hope that these sins, that this different way of living that's not like Christ is going to work out. Uh, one of my favorite novels, uh, novel series is The Hunger Games, and I love them to death. I, I'm, I'm a fangirl, I'll admit it. Um, and there's this part in the novels where uh, this man who is the authority figure over all of the land, he's this evil guy, and he talks about how important hope is to manipulating people. Uh, this is the quote from the book. It says, hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. And this is why we see our loved ones having momentary successes. Having moments where the sin in their lives says, yeah, this is working. And it doesn't happen, nothing changes until we come to our senses and realize that it's not working, until we take a step back and say, I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled, I I'm not hopeful. And usually the only thing that produces these moments where we come to our senses is hardship. It's when we go through trials and we say, no, this isn't working. My life is not filled with hope. It is not happy. I have no joy or peace or patience or kindness or hope or direction. And the son realizes that. And he decides what has to be done. Verse 18, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. 
And if I'm the son, this is the speech that I would be rehearsing from the second I left the pig pen until the moment I saw my dad. Over and over again, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as hired servants. And this man, he chooses to admit that he had it all wrong. And he chooses to say, Father, I wasn't right. In fact, I hurt you. I don't even belong in your household. Will you make me a servant? And this is where it, it hits, is that repentance starts with a choice. Listen, I think a lot of times, pastors, we talk about repentance and we say, you know, we just realize that we're garbage. We just realize that we just really suck at this. And then, and then because that we suck, we repent. But the other side of that is that the reason we repent is not just for our shortcomings, but because of God's goodness. That at the end of the day, this son, he knew that he had messed up. But at the end of the day, in the depths of his heart, he knew that his father was the type of guy to drive down to the oil road and sit with him in below zero temperatures. He knew at the depths of who he was that his father would have mercy for him. And he knew that he could return. See, repentance is not just about our brokenness. Don't get me wrong, it is. But it's also about knowing how good our God is. And this is where the whole story turns. Verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him filled with love and compassion. Which blows my mind. Because their last interaction was not filled with love and compassion, was it? He says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And the story takes a wild, unexpected turn here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, if you are a Jewish person and you forsaked, you're, you're forsooked? I don't know. Forsaked <laughs> your dad like that? You know what? the rituals would have been, they would have drug him into the center of town, they would have called everybody together, and then they would have brought a huge pot in front of him and then shattered it before him, representing how shattered his life was. And then they would say, you are cut off from your people. You have no support system. You have nothing to do with us. You are a stranger of God. And so when this dad gets up and he runs to the son, it is out of love, no doubt. But also, it's because he wants to be there before anybody else does. He wants to be there before shame meets him at the border of the city, before the elders meet him. He wants to beat the shame and the guilt, and he runs to the son and embraces him and kisses him. And so often we say, you have to get your act together before you can experience God's unconditional love. And that is not unconditional love. The love of a father is one that sees us, that knows us, that knows all the ways that we have done him wrong. And he runs to us and embraces. And like, just think about this for a second. He was not eating very well. 
I can't imagine he's had a bath in a very long time. And what the Father does is the same thing that he does for you and me. When we choose to walk towards him, he runs. He wraps his arms around him. And he kisses his dirty face that is filled with filth of the decisions that he has made. That's unconditional love. That's the love of the Father. And that's what sets our religion apart from every other. That we have God, our Father, who uh, is the source of our existence, who protects us, who corrects us, and who loves us unconditionally. And you have to see what happens next, because the son, who has probably rehearsed his speech up to this point, he says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And halfway through his rehearsed speech, he gets cut off. He doesn't even get to finish. He doesn't even get to the good part about being his slave, which like some dads are like, come on, you should have waited a second to see the goods, okay? (laughs) But he cuts him off halfway. And the father, in verse 22, it says, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house. And just imagine that moment. You are face to face with a son that said, I don't care if you live or die. And he says, Father, I have sinned against you. And his father's like, hey, 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 we got to have a party. <laughs> well, imagine that moment. And it says, uh, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Our God is so good. He is so good. And all through life, we get to this place where we're like, I just want what's fair. I just want what I deserve. I just want to go out and spend money and live life to the fullest and be living my best life and doing these things. That, and I need what I deserve. And let me tell you what, the beauty of this moment is that the father does not treat the son like he deserves. This son deserves a shattered pot in his face to represent his shattered life. Romans talks about how the wages of sin are death and how we all fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve a shattered mess in front of our lives and saying, this, this is what we deserve. And yet he shows unconditional, unwarranted love which is the last step that every prodigal makes, and that is rejoice. There is rebellion, there is repentance, and then there is rejoicing. You gotta love how everything with the Lord ends at a party, you know? (laughs) There is rebellion, repentance, and then rejoicing. And today, while oftentimes this story is preached and we give a salvation message and people come to the Lord, today I felt uh, very impressed upon to end a little bit differently. Today I, I thought of all of the people that you've shared with me, that you say, Lindsay, maybe they'll come to church this day. 
Lindsay, I don't know what to do. And I wonder if maybe today the point of the prodigal son's journey is not for us to turn our lives around, but to decide that we're going to be like the father. Uh, in uh, scripture, there's different versions of time. And one of those pieces, of, versions of time is called kairos time. And this, this means God's time, where we get to step out of, of the normal timeline that we see before, present, and after. And God sees everything. And I wonder if this morning, if the Lord would allow us some Kairos time, some Kairos time to think, God, what is the day going to look like when they choose to stop running? See, if you've heard this story before, you've heard of the other son and how upset he got. But what would it look like for us to decide today that whenever they come back, we're going to throw the biggest dang party you've ever seen? That we're going to embrace them and kiss their dirty faces <laughs> and tell them how much God loves them? Now, um, I'm going to ask Amanda to turn off the lights for, for us this time. Um, and, and just as we held our hands down to represent surrender, I just want to challenge you to hold your hands out with palms up. And I want you to think of that person or those people that are far from you right now. I want you to think of what they look like, of who they are, of the lies that are entangling them right now. And we're going to move into a time of worship. And before we get there, um, Pastor Valerie is, or Pastor Elizabeth is going to sing um, a song that might be familiar to you. And I just want this moment to be a time where we can intercede and pray for those people. Jesus, you know how far away they have ran. God, you know the ways that they have hurt us. Lord, you know what our last interaction was like. But Father, I want to choose today, number one, to trust you, that you are still waiting, watching the horizon for them to return. And second, I want to commit to you that when we experience that moment, I'm going to be like the Father. I'm going to be like the Father that you are. I'm going to embrace them, and I'm going to rejoice.